Good morning, Tabernacle. Uh, glad you could make it. I heard the snow's a little bit uh, worse in Manistee than it is here, but uh, we're the tab we don't close, so well done. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and this past week uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving. We should always be thankful. We should always be grateful, but in this particular season, uh, we take a little extra time to be thankful. And so that was a little difficult for me, I'm not going to lie, because I woke up and there was a blanket of white outdoors. And yeah, I know some of you are fired up, but on Thanksgiving Day, I was in San Diego, California. So I decided, just be grateful for that, calm down. I live in Michigan. That's the way it rolls. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I also wanted to give you just a little update. Last weekend was our big give offering, uh, which by the way is open all the way to the end of the year. Our finance team let me know that you can still give if you miss that uh, and you want to be a part of it. I know some people put their end of the year giving closer to the end of the year. Uh, you can still be a part of that. But we're going to celebrate right now what God did and that offering from both campuses and online because of God's generosity to us and faithful people being obedient to God. $73,173. That's pretty cool. I'm fired up about that. I'm also grateful. We are grateful. Uh, we want to take some time to show some extra gratitude uh, to our speaker uh, this weekend. This will be the last time for a while uh, that he'll be preaching here. If you didn't get the email, uh, Britton Bishop um, is going to be moving to a new position in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, uh, we love Britton Bishop a ton. I do. I don't know if you do, but I do. Um, and uh, just, just wanted to take you down memory lane just a little bit. Um, the first time I laid eyes on Britain, he was this big, giant, hairy individual sitting at the back of an auditorium, right? And he wasn't really interested in God, wasn't even a Christian. If you've heard the story, maybe listen to the podcast, I actually made a mistake and called him out. I think I said something like, you know, live in northern Michigan, you, you know, you got to be a mountain man. You got to look like that bro back there on his phone. And that was him, Right. Unfortunately, he didn't come back to church for a while. Sorry, I don't always get it right. But when he did come back, he ended up saying yes to Jesus. His life was changed. He was set free from a whole ton of things. He continued to say yes to Jesus, and he became a preacher, a powerful preacher. And, and this picture right here, like, like that's a classic Britain Bishop pose. In fact, I'm, I'm heard that his wife uh, actually imitated him uh, with that exact pose. She does a good job of it. When he gets the Bible up high, right up by his face, and he's doing the... You know, I love that, uh, which is why uh, we also invited him uh, to be a part of our staff. And I'm thankful that he continued to say yes. And uh, he moved across the country in the middle of a pandemic of which will not be named. And uh, he joined our staff. In fact, you know, he became a part of the, you know, the youth ministry staff and, and worked hard and, and he worked well uh, with Adam Sharp. In fact, they became stepbrothers together. And... <laughs> And they brought so much life together as a crew uh, 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 to our team, to our staff, uh, being a part of the teaching team. He, he was part of starting the podcast. Well, he did start the podcast. Um, but we're just so grateful because he was always willing to get in the dirt, get in the mud, whether it was Fight Club or with youth group, and he's made a huge impact on our church. He's helped change the vernacular of our church, the DNA. We've added that phrase, saying yes to God. And we're so glad uh, that he continued to say yes. And we're also glad that in Michigan, he found the love of his wife, who also said yes, this is hope, right? And so uh, they were married, they're part of our family. The problem with family is sometimes family, the nest begins to empty. You know, not that uh, we raised him or any, anything like that, but um, uh, when, when we lose a staff member, it's always hard because this isn't a job, this is a family. And so um, would you join me in thanking God, not only for what he did with the Big Give, but for three years, almost three years with Britain Bishop's ministry here. Would you thank him for that? I'm also going to invite um, our staff members that are available if they'll come out here. Uh, last night, it was, uh, it was just me. First service, we brought up your stepbrother, Adam, and it got really dicey. Now we brought them all, including our podcast producer. Don't worry, he's not going to pray. Um, you've been trying for a while, but uh, um, we got a charge for you as you go. Hope, we love you. 
and you're part of this too. But as you know, at the tab, uh, you don't ever have to get up here if you don't feel like it. Uh, you can thank Darcy for that. Uh, but, uh, but we have a charge for you. It comes right out of Paul's charge uh, to, um, to the church and to Timothy. And, uh, um, you know, Manistee, you're going to have a chance. Don't worry. Uh, um, in a couple weeks will be his last Sunday. But for our whole church, we wanted to give you this charge as you go out from us. First of all, continue to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And I know that this has been a hard decision. And, uh, um, you know, we've always said you love God first, you put your wife second. God willing, some children, they're third. And then ministry will happen. But continue to do that. The second thing is preach the word. I don't care if it's ESV, the CBD Bible that you love so much. Uh, uh, just preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. That is your charge. That is your calling. And then above all things, as a man, as a husband, God willing, as a father, a friend, a brother, a colleague, continue to fight um, the good fight of the faith. Uh, so... Um, I've asked uh, Martin Rizzi, our campus pastor here, if he's going to pray for you. Now, you know I've always looked up to you, but Martin has looked up to you more. <laughs> and so, uh, church, I'm going to ask you here in Manistee, uh, would you stand with me? We're going to pray for uh, Britton Bishop. Martin's going to lead us. Oh, Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this man that you brought here in the midst of a tough time. Father, I thank you for him in my life and the inspiration and encouragement that he has been to me and to my family. Father, I, I, we are so grateful for what you have given us in him and through him. His gifts and his blessing, the, the humor, the encouragement, the wisdom, and the strength. Father, he is and has been somebody who has made such an impact in so many here. Lord, we cannot begin to thank you enough for what you have put in him that he has shared with us. Father, we ask for your blessing as he moves on. Lord, that you would continue to work and to act powerfully through him, to share your gospel through his words around this world. God, we trust that there will be many days from this point forward that you will use him in ways that we could not begin to imagine. Father, we just pray that you would allow our memory to resonate with him. Father, the jokes, the fun, the time that we've had. God, we pray for his family, that all of it would be blessing, that they would see you clearly, that they would continue to follow you, Lord, that he would lead them well. Lord, I see nothing in him that you haven't created, that you aren't perfecting, that you aren't working in. God, we thank you for the message he brings today, but we thank you for the man that he will be for years to come. God, will you care for him and for them? Will you carry them? Will you let your face shine upon them? And Lord, will you be the direction of their life and their heart as they continue to say yes to you in all things? And we will be careful to trust you with him and his family. We pray this in your son Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Man, had to do it for the third service, huh? Whew. What are we talking about? Tabernacle, um, Manistee, uh, see you guys soon. It's been a privilege um, to serve, to be a part of, um, to be molded and crafted by uh, this church body. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for an opportunity to come here uh, as a kid from Oklahoma um, that was excited, and that was about all I had to offer, uh, was some excitement and, uh, and Jesus. And uh, since the beginning, you guys have welcomed me. Um, when Hope and I were married, you guys welcomed her. And uh, it's been a privilege. Thank you, guys, so much. Uh, for the ways that you've said yes to Jesus and the ways that you've been dominoes in our lives. Um, and I have no doubt, no doubt, 
that the things that God has done in the past few years here um, will continue um, in this church, um, in these communities, um, and in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tabernacle, we're just uh, adding a fourth campus, if you will. <laughs> so uh, we're going to go on the offense for a minute. And uh, I've learned so much here about what it looks like to fearlessly live for the king and his kingdom, to say yes to him, um, no matter the cost, um, and saying it the way he's designed you to say it. Uh, I've never felt more welcome somewhere where I just get to be myself. Um, if you haven't noticed yet, I've worn the same t-shirt every single time I've preached here. Um, and uh, it's because I can, um, because you guys love me. Uh, and so it's been a privilege. And uh, we ain't done yet, all right? And so, uh, yeah, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn there. Before we get into that, um, I do feel like this would be kind of the time, I guess, to, to confess something to you um, as a church, uh, something, a bitterness that I've been harboring uh, for quite a few years now since I've been here. I've vocalized it a little bit, um, talked about it on the podcast probably more than I should have. Um, but guys, green bean casserole is not that bad, all right? Uh, so I know I spent multiple episodes on the podcast last year, post-Thanksgiving, dragging green bean casserole through the mud. And I just want to say I'm sorry, um, because God opened my eyes, like a Damascus Road experience on Thanksgiving this year, right? So I'm sitting at the table um, at the Bruce's house in Manistee, um, and Nikki Bruce cooked so much food. It was like a pie marathon. And so I was like, fi all the things. But she was making green bean casserole, and for the first time I was like, huh, that looks different than like Mamaw's green bean casserole, where she's just like, can of green beans, not drained, can of cream and mushroom soup, that cheap French's stuff and a shake of bacon bits. And she's like, it's a casserole, you'll love it. And I'm like, that's from devil. All right, that's, there's no way that's Christian. But I'm watching Nikki make green bean casserole and she's like boiling fresh garden green beans that are like this long. And she's taking and she's making her own cream of mushroom soup, like from scratch. She fried like 14 pounds of bacon, praise God, right? There's these French fried onions and she's putting it all together. And I remember sitting down and I was like, I, I gotta try it. It's all my favorite things except for green beans and they're big enough, I think I can eat around them. And guys, it was awesome. It was like the best part of Thanksgiving and I had so much pie, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Just felt like you guys needed to know that God has moved in my life once again. Uh, and this time it was through green bean casserole. Um, yeah, so John um, asked me, if I wanted to, to preach uh, one last time, um, for now, for now, I've got some ideas. Uh, I think I'm just going to come back every now and then and just do a sermon series called Someone Has to Say It, and I'm just going to be mean to you guys, um, but for the glory of God. Um, but he was like, hey, do you want to preach? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Is that even a question? Since my time here, I've just, I just feel this strong um, desire and calling on my life to preach God's word. Um, it's something that he has just, he placed a joy in me to study and to communicate. And so John was like, hey, do you want to do this? Absolutely. He's like, okay, um, well, I want you to look at some of the dates. And as you guys probably have noticed, 1 Kings 6 and 7 is a doozy, isn't it? <laughs> so I'm reading through it. I'm like, farewell message, 1 Kings 7, 1 through 12. Sweet. All right, so here we go. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon completed his entire palace complex after 13 years of construction. So this week I was uh, studying this text and if you remember just in the verse before this last week, John was talking about Solomon beginning and completing God's temple and he was building God's temple and there's gold everywhere and there's just this incredible masterpiece and all this stuff. But at the conclusion of that, it says, and it took him seven years to complete this project. And so I remember as I'm reading this and I had kind of had that in mind, I'm like, 13 years on his own palace complex? Ladies and gentlemen, we got him, right? I know what I'm preaching about this week. Whose kingdom will you build? He put so much more time and attention into his. It took him 13 years. And then I was directly rebuked by every scholar ever and uh, <laughs> simply what comes to play here, maybe you read the Bible like I do sometimes and it's just my ideas, my thoughts, and I just take it at surface level. And it's just me being honest. But as I studied deeper and looked at it, I realized that 
Solomon put so much priority on God's temple being completed first that that's why we see the manpower and the time spent there being such a huge difference. It wasn't that he was building something more magnificent for himself. It was that he focused so much intentional time and intention on finishing God's temple that that's why it was completed in a shorter amount of time. And maybe you're like, who cares? I cared this week and I'm in charge right now. All right, no, I'm just kidding, all right? So I'm not in charge. Holy Spirit, please forgive me. Uh, verse two, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon and it was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams and the top of the pillars, it was paneled above with cedar at the top of the chambers that rested on 45 pillars, 15 per row. And there were three rows, rows of window frames facing each other in three tiers. And all the doors and door doorposts had rectangular frames and the opening facing each other in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars 75 feet long and 45 feet wide. And a portico was in front of the pillars and a canopy with pillars was in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he would judge. And the hall of judgment, it was paneled with cedar from the floor to the rafters. And the Northern Michigan man said, amen. A lot of cedar wood, guys. I don't actually know if that's in northern Michigan, but I'm assuming all of you know what it is. And so he's building all this stuff. There's so much cedar wood. This feels like the floor plans for a barnuminium. And you're reading it, and you're like, oh, rectangle doors. Makes sense. Yeah, I can get behind that. Maybe that's just me. But I'm looking at all of this, and I'm like, what is going on? What are they talking about? And we look at this, and we see that, okay, so he's building this forest of the Lebanon room, and it's three times bigger than God's temple. Like, what's going on there? And that's actually, if you dig in and look, that's where they store, that's where the armory and the treasury is. So the weapons, the, gun, uh, the, stuff, uh, the money, all this stuff is being stored in this place. So it's huge. And then it continues, and he built a hall of the throne where he would judge. Remember, as I was reading that, and you guys know this by now, often I, I think kind of, through like pictures and movies and what does this look like? Because I need to see this. I can't just read it. I need to like, in my mind, I need to see this. So I took it upon myself this week to watch the movie Gladiator because I felt like that was going to be the best image that I could see of like a throne room. And so I'm looking at this and I'm imagining this hall of judgment and there's the throne at the center of the room and this is where you bring in people and Solomon will sit on his throne and he'll just hit the right? And that's just kind of this thing that he has set up here. And remember, I'm looking at this and I found myself just thinking, man, like how much is judgment just such a negative thing in our world today? You guys know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe it's just me, but, but how much is judgment just, just weaponized in our culture today? Who are you to judge me? Maybe you heard it this Thanksgiving. Who are you to judge me? I live my truth. I do what I need to do. And remember, I reminded us months ago that we need to be careful when looking at Scripture that we not view it through the lens of the world, but that we view the world through the lens of Scripture. And so I studied that a little bit, and I'm looking at it where it says, where he will judge. That phrase judge in Hebrew simply means set things right. How much is that the heart of God with judgment. God is not a God that is here to scorn and shame his people. No, he's a God that is here that has designed something good and perfect and pleasing. And the heart of God's judgment is one that sets things right, sets things back to the original design. You know, I think it's hilarious as you look and read different things in culture today. I was um, months ago reading the Wall Street Journal and there was an article in there that was um, couples who don't cohabitate before marriage have a 75% are 75% less likely to get divorced in the first five years. Couples who don't cohabitate in the, in, while they're dating before marriage are 75% less likely to get divorced in the, in the first five years. And you're reading that and Wall Street Journal's like, guys, we figured something out. We did it. We have new science, new information. And God's saying that was my design all along. And so often the world tries to take and twist and get toward something that God designed to be good, to be holy, to be perfect. 
and to twist it to fit its schemes and its plans. And God is simply setting things right. God has a design for your life. God has a design for your relationships. God has a design for your parenting. And when you experience that conviction or that judgment from his word, from his word being preached, from his spirit, understand that that is not one of scorn and shame. It is one of love that wants to set things right, that wants the best for you and your life. Because his design is good. It's good. It's good. I remember we were just this last week at the high school retreat and um, some of the students, we had, did like a Q&A with the youth pastors, um, myself, Adam, AJ Garcia from Westside Community Church. We're sitting up there and uh, one of the students, one of their questions was something along the lines of, well, why do you follow Jesus? Which is a profound question for a student to ask if you really think about it. They're like, well, you say all these things, but why are you following Jesus? And I remember as I'm thinking about this question and listening to Adam and AJ just articulate beautifully, essentially what it boiled down to in my answer was because I tried my way and my way didn't work. My life was in shambles. I was hopeless, I was broken, I was isolated, and I was lost. And God provided a way out. And he had to do some serious work in my life. There were some things that really needed to be set right. There were some deep issues, deep-seated shame and sin and things that God had to show up in those spaces and set them right. But now as I look back, there were times where it was like, man, this hurts. But his heart is always restoration. His heart it's always restoration. So as we look at this idea of judgment through a biblical lens, we have to understand that God is God, and we are not. He's the only one deemed worthy to judge, and he has a design for our lives, and his goal is to set things right. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Solomon's own palace, where he would live, in the other courtyard behind the hall was of similar construction. He made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. And all of these buildings were of costly stones, cut to size and sawed with saws on the inner and outer surfaces from the foundation to coping and from the outside to the great courtyard. The foundation was made of large costly stones, 12 and 15 feet long. And above also were also costly stones, cut to size as well as more cedar wood. And around the courtyard as well as the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple and the portico of the temple were three rows of dressed stone and a row of trimmed cedar beams. Whew. What? <laughs> That's where I was at this week, guys. As I'm reading this, I'm looking at all of these details and then I was reminded. And I don't know if you guys remember, um, as a church, we went through a, a book study of First and Second Samuel. And it was I mean, I think about a year or two ago now, and we, we studied this, and I was reminded of a similar time in the reign of King David where we found ourselves in Scripture, and I reacted similarly to just this exhaustive list of details. And so I went and I found it in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And after this, David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, and took Metheg from the Philistine control, and he also defeated the Moabites. And after making them lie down on the ground, he measured them off with a cord. And he measured every two cord lengths of those to be put to death, and one full length of those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's subjects and brought tribute. And David also defeated Hadadezer, and son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his control at the Euphrates River. And David captured 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers from him, and he hamstrung all the horses and kept 100 chariots. And it's like, okay, I see a theme here. And it's simply this. David, his whole entire reign was a battle. It was fight after fight after fight. So David's reign was battle. What you'll see as we continue is Solomon's reign is building after building after building. So we see a connection here, because this is the same kingdom, same kingdom being established, same family line. David battled so Solomon could build. 
David had blood on his hands. Solomon has calluses on his. So where's Jesus in this? That's where I found myself this week. Where is Jesus? If Jesus is a truer and better David and a truer and better Solomon, where is he in this? Jesus battled so he could build. Jesus battled so he could build. I know some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's a simple fact that Jesus is a truer and better version of David and Solomon because he came and he established his kingdom. He battled. He won the fight that none of us could win. He defeated Satan, sin, and death forever so that he could build his church. Jesus battled so he could build. Jesus is a truer and better king. What did he battle? I know sometimes that's something we say um, often, but it's something that maybe we don't unpack a lot. Is what, what, did, what do you mean Jesus battled? What are you, what are you talking about? Because when I read, it's just like he was spitting in the mud, rubbing it in people's eyes. Like What, what do you mean Jesus battled? What do, you, what do you mean Jesus battled? I think the book of Colossians does a good job of, of telling us about that, and I, I have to say this. I didn't put Colossians 2 in the slides or on the screen on purpose because if I get to say one thing before I leave, let it be this. Find your Bible. Find your Bibles. I'm cool with flat screens and all that, but I would, I would urge you, get the leather and paper. 2024 is coming up. New year, new you, right? Find a Bible. Get one for the next year. Bring it to church every single week. Circle, underline, highlight, write all over it, write in the margins. When you read your Bible at home, let it be the same. Just have that Bible with you. You're kind of your everyday carry, right? Some of you guys have had a pocket knife since 1843, all right? So it's time we do the same thing with our Bibles. Find a Bible, a leather and paper Bible. You can go down to Books a Million, get online. There's leather, there's paperback, there's goatskin. Praise God, all right? Find a Bible. Get yourself a Bible. If you, don't, if you don't have one, you can't afford one, you find Martin, he'll get you one. But I didn't put this on the screen, not because I want to be passive-aggressive, a little bit maybe, right? But to make a point, we need our Bibles because this is the, this is the truth of who God is. This is his design of, of, from beginning to end of bringing his people back to himself. This is it. This is God's word for us today, tomorrow, and forever. And often I think that we would say, man, you know, I, I, I want to know what God's calling me to next. I want to know what God's plan is for my life. I want to know what my purpose is. What do I do with these kids? What, what am I supposed to do at work? It's all in here. Some of you, you don't, have, you don't have a deep understanding of the scriptures because you're relying on sermons. Find your Bibles. Study them. Fall in love with God's word. I love in the book of James, it says not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. But there's one thing that's consistent in all of that. It's what? The word. And I remember when I first moved here, um, John, I was getting ready to preach, and you could tell he was like excited, but nervous. <laughs> and rightfully so, right? I'm a, I was excited, okay? That's what I, me and Martin wrote this message together, together, and it was like, man, we're gonna do this. And I remember I'm sitting out with John, and I have my iPad out, and I'm like walking him through what it's gonna look like and all this, and he's like, you got all your scriptures in here. Do you have a Bible? I was like, no, I'm just gonna take my iPad up there. And he's like, well, I, I really think you should use a Bible. And I'm like, what does it matter? I just think you should use a Bible. I remember that night, I, I was like, okay, well, I'll think. And, and then John texted me like a middle school breakup text that was like this long of all the reasons why leather and paper were better. And guys, he was right. And I know some of you were like, well, Tim uses an iPad. Tim's old, all right? He's earned it. He's earned it. So if you're older than Tim and you know how to use an iPad, that's all you, all right? But if you're younger than Tim, get a Bible. He can't see. There'd have to be one letter on each page. It'd be a mess, all right? It'd be this big of a... I love you, Tim. Uh, get a Bible. Seriously, students, find your Bibles. We got plenty of them. Bring them to church. Dads, there's nothing more powerful than a kid seeing their dad read the Bible. 
And I know we use the Bible app and all that stuff. Praise God for it. There's something about it. I don't know. Just something about it. That was free. Colossians chapter 2. Hopefully you have a Bible or else you're just going to have to take my word for it. How did Jesus battle? When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and he opposed to and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Circle, underline, highlight. How did Jesus battle? Verse 15, I love this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them in him. How did Jesus battle? By going to the cross. Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. In Jesus' life, he stood face to face with Satan and Satan's temptation. And Jesus never gave in. He never sinned. He never sinned. Never. And he still died. A criminal's death. They nailed him to a cross. They tortured him. He bled. And they buried him in a grave. And three days later, he walked out of that grave, finalizing victory once for all and for all once. Jesus battled so he could build. He finished the work, he completed the victory. He won the game. Jesus did it all. He defeated Satan, sin, and death totally and completely. And that's still just as true today. I love verse 15. I told you, circle, underline, highlight. He disarmed him. He disarmed him. What that tells us, church, is that because Jesus battled, because Jesus secured victory, Satan has no power over you anymore if you're in Christ. And the only power he wields and holds in your life is what you give to him. Because in Christ, he has been totally defeated. Through the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to fight against the temptation and the deception of the enemy. Your life doesn't have to be shame and shackles and bondage anymore because Jesus has won complete victory. And that's a reality for you today. Today, right now, and I understand processes are messy. Some of us in here are, 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 are thing that the enemy is holding us into, that this, this area that it feels like Jesus hasn't won this battle yet because we're still trying, there's addiction. And I understand those processes are messy and they take time. And for a lot of us, it's maybe meaning getting involved in a group, talking to a counselor. But starting the process of surrendering those things to Jesus and trusting that he has won the war. He's won the war. You don't have to win. You just have to surrender. Because Jesus won it all. He won it all. He battled and he won. He disarmed the enemy. Satan has no power over your kids anymore. If they're in Christ, how are we going to live in accordance to that? I think so often, so many of us are stuck in the shame and in the lies that the enemy has convinced us of, that that's who you are because you're a man from northern Michigan and your daddy was that way and your granddaddy was that way and his daddy was that way. You're always just going to be like that. You don't have to be addicted. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be hopeless because Jesus died for you and he finished the work and there's victory available today if you'll say yes to him. Your life doesn't have to be what the enemy's convinced you that it is. It can be more than that. In Christ. In Christ. But so many of us have decided that we don't want to identify with that victory. We don't want to give ourselves to that project. We want to keep fighting on our own accord. We want to do our own thing. Matt Mo, give me a second. I'm going to adjust this real quick. We want to do what only we can do. And we're wondering why we're still losing. 
because we're not allowing the God of the universe to win the battle for us. Church, we'll never be enough without him. That sin, that shame, that addiction, keep trying on your own. But I can promise you that in Christ, committed to the process that he's called you to, one yes at a time, there's freedom available for you today. There's victory available for you today. So how are we gonna live in accordance to that? How are we gonna live in accordance to that? Trusting that if Jesus won the battle, he's going to build his people. He's going to build his church. He is going to establish something out of our lives. Just like David battled so Solomon could live in the reality of victory, Jesus battled so we can live in the reality of victory. There's victory for you today, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ. But so many of us are, are hanging on, hanging on by a thread, stuck, believing the lies, believing the shame. And Jesus is saying, will you just let me have it? Will you just give it to me? Will you start the process? Let me be God. Let me set things right in your life. I want better for you if you'll just say yes. If you'll just say yes. So that's how Jesus battled. What's he building? What's he building? All right, passive aggressiveness is over. Matthew 16, 18. And I also say to you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the true God. And Jesus acknowledges that and he says, and you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so many people get the misconception that Jesus is saying, and on this rock of Peter, I will build my church. But Jesus is saying, on this rock that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will never overcome it. But remember, John talked to us last week or a couple weeks ago this is the trick move, you ready? We're the church. It's not about walls and cedar logs. It's changed lives. And Jesus is gonna build his church because the gospel is the greatest building project of all. The gospel is the greatest building project of all. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Does your lifestyle emulate that conviction? That in my life, everything I have, everything I am is centered on seeing his kingdom come and his will be done. In my life, I want to see the gospel built in and through me. That everyone would know that I align myself with Jesus Christ, King Supreme, and everything he does in me now flows out, and I have submitted myself to the greatest building project of all time, which is the gospel. That I am going to take the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ died, that he rose from the grave, and that if people will just confess with their mouth and believe in the heart that he is God, they can be saved too. The gospel is the greatest building project of all time. Is that true in your marriage? Men, if I ask your wife what you're building, what would she say? The gospel is the greatest thing we can give to our wives every single day. The love of Christ to lay ourselves down as Christ loved the church. Men, that's for us, that's our call. That's our charge, to love our wives. If we are gonna operate in the reality of victory, it starts in our homes. It starts in our marriages, men. So many of us, our wives are struggling with the reality of following Jesus because she has a husband that goes to fight club on Thursdays, but when he comes home, he's the same old guy. He's harsh, he's bitter. 
And she's wondering, could this Jesus really be real? Because based off what I see out of him, there's no way. What are you building? Some of us are kids. They hear from mom and dad all the time. We go to church on Sundays. But they see something completely different on the way there or when we get home. And guys, guys, don't hear perfection out of this, okay? We're all going to screw up. We're going to blow it. The reality is the heart behind it. For some of us, we've convinced our kids that their athletic scholarship is the greatest building project of all. You knew I was going to go there. I only got one more crack at you. I might as well say it. Some of us have convinced our kids that their future is entangled in extracurricular activities and we're wondering why when they're 25, we're sitting in our campus pastor's office crying because our kid doesn't love Jesus anymore. And it's because when they were 16, you told them basketball was God. You might not have said it, but you showed them. Because on Sunday night, if there was basketball practice or church, we went to basketball. And your kid's 25 now, and you're wondering why they're hopelessly addicted to drugs and alcohol and living in sin. And it's because mom and dad never took the charge to show their kids that Jesus is the priority of their life. But I don't want to be overbearing. I don't want to wear them out with it. If you truly live out the gospel in the model that Jesus has set forth, your kids will love Jesus in his time, but make it a priority. Get their butts to church. Guys, I mean it. All right, here, I'm going to stop being passionate. Hear me. I have rings. I had scholarships. I won the games. None of it matters. None of it. None of it. Praise God for Kingsley football. I'm pumped that they won because it made Manistee look less bad because we lost to them in the playoffs. <laughs> but you know what I'd say to every single one of those boys? Good. Good. But that's not what really matters. The gospel is the only thing that can sustain your life. The gospel is the only thing that are gonna get your kids right with Jesus. And it starts by making it a priority in the home. Mom and dad, I know it's hard. And I hope someday when Hope and I have kids of our own that there's some fiery, sweaty 28-year-old that yells at me and says, get your stinking kids in church. Because Adam and I, we've given our lives to this. It's everything we are to see the next generation equipped with the love of Jesus, to love God, love people, and make disciples. Tonight, at both your campuses, your kids are gonna hear a sermon preached, and the main point is this, just Jesus. You don't want your kids sitting there? You guys think I'm fired up now, ask the students. Remember one time we went on a trip with some of our uh, students from the tabernacle and a, a guy asked one of the kids, does he always talk to you guys like that? They said, yeah, this is normal. He loves Jesus and he wants us to too. Guys, I don't want you to hear shame. I don't want you to hear condemnation. I want you to hear a heart that desires to see this world one for Christ. And it's gonna take the next generation. And we got something going here. But we need parents to make it a priority. We can walk the school halls, sit in the cafeteria, but the reality is, statistically, both our youth ministries at both campuses are over 70% kids whose families don't go to this church. Where are your kids? Because they ain't in church. What are you telling them is important? The gospel is the greatest building project of all. What will you build in your life? Will it be his kingdom or yours?
at work? Are you going to take this charge to be a domino, to live out the call every single day, saying yes to Jesus, no matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the cost, to say, you know what? He's worth it every time. In your schools, students, I love the trend we see happening all over the campuses, the the schools that are connected to our campuses of students praying before games. But guys, you can't forget that you prayed as soon as the game starts, okay? We've gotta take it beyond just the little holy huddle. We've gotta take it out of the church and take it to the world. That's the mission, to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. To make disciples. Guys, that's the heart of why Hope and I are saying yes to Jesus and moving to Tulsa. We don't know why all the time. We don't know what it's going to look like. We wish every detail was laid out like Victoria was talking about. But we know that Jesus has called us. And we've learned in our lives that there's one response when faced with a call from Christ. And it's yes. And it's yes. If I can leave you with one thing, it would be this. Say yes to Jesus and stay on the offense because victory is secured. Satan can't win, so we might as well get aggressive. Let's do it. Let's take over the world. His kingdom come. His will be done. The bands are going to come out at both campuses, and I'd ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know the stresses of your life, the the fears, the anxieties, the doubts, the tensions. I don't know. But I know how you can leave. I I think there are, are some people in this room that it's time you let Jesus win the battle so he can build his kingdom in your life. You're fighting this fight on your own and you're stuck in defeat and hopelessness and isolation. And Jesus is here to provide a way out. And he's saying, will you just cry out to me? Maybe that's you, maybe there's a sin in your life that nobody else knows about. It's controlling you. It's destroying your marriage, your finances. It has become your God. Today's the day. You can surrender it. You can trust that Jesus has completely disarmed the enemy. And just like Solomon, we can live and the reality of victory, and see Jesus build his kingdom in and through our lives. The heart of God is restoration, to set things right. So if that's you here in a moment, I'm just gonna take some time, just a little bit of time. I just want you to just have an honest conversation with Jesus. Or this is somewhere that I'm not completely trusting you. Or this is something I'm holding on to because I experience pleasure from it more than anywhere else. And God, I want to surrender to you and I want to find my satisfaction completely in you. I want to trust that you're a good God that loves me, that has a good idea for my life. And then we're going to sing a song. And I requested this song, um, one, because I like it, <laughs> and two, because of what it means. You know, when, when faced with this idea of surrender, it can be really hard to trust that God has everything I need. It can be really hard to, to, to believe that, that, that he's enough. 
And a part of surrender is just taking the first step. And this song talks about that, that Jesus is everything we need and more. He's truer than true. He's purer than pure. He's everything we need and more. Let that be a promise for you as we leave. And then when faced with this idea of surrender, you can trust that there's a God in heaven that loves you, that sent his son, that paid the price, that defeated Satan's sin and death forever. And he has everything you could ever want and more and more. So if you need to surrender something, take a moment. Lord, we praise you. God, we thank you for for who you are, for what you've done, for the work that you've completed, for the battles that you've won. God, I'm sorry for the times that that I don't think you're enough, that that I think I need something else, that I try to find satisfaction or peace outside of you. God, I'm sorry. And I ask that you'd forgive me. God, I want to say yes to you every day in my marriage. With everything I have, God, I want to say yes to you. Lord, because it's the joy of our life to serve you. God, thanks for not just telling us what to do, but showing us what it looks like. I love the picture you paint for us in scripture when Jesus cries out, if there's any other way, but not your will, but not my will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I know there's a lot of times in my life where that's the cry of my life. Is there any other way? And you say, will you just say yes and let me take care of the rest? So that's our heart cry today, Lord. Yes. To you, to your will, forever. For your glory, for our joy, and for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.